0: You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with Adam
1: Keller and Jacob Morrison.
2: The time has come for America to hear the truth.
0: Good evening, folks. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host, Adam Keller. This is the third conversation in our uh, IWW interview series. We are talking to wobblies from across the country, trying to get some in Canada. We're still working on that, uh, but definitely from across the country about their campaigns and about winning in their workplace. And we have tonight Erica... Uh, she is an IWW member She worked at Stardust Diner in New York And that has long been uh, the home of one of the IW- one of the campaigns that the IWW, broadly speaking, is most proud of And so we're very excited to be able to talk to her tonight uh, Erica, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us
2: Yeah, absolutely, thanks for having me
0: So we're going to have a lot to talk about uh, You're from Alabama, you went up to New York uh, you do you know shows and stuff and you're in the union and you're actually, I mentioned this when we talked to the other day, you're the second person that we've talked to from New York who came from Alabama uh, we talked to the interim uh, no, 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 it was the um somebody from the New Yorker Union the secretary of the New Yorker Union and um, I w- when we started the interview before or before we started the interview she mentioned that she was from Alabama and so we talked about that for a while um, and I'm sure that we'll do the same with you but to start off can you tell us about Stardust diner exactly like what what makes Stardust kind of an interesting place
2: so Stardust is fascinating because it is world-known tourist restaurant in the middle of Times Square in New York city. And it is famous for it's singing waitstaff. So just about everyone who works there is a professional singer, um, either trying to be on Broadway or has been on Broadway and is between contracts at the moment. Um, But it's just a really unique place where you can go and eat, you know, your standard, typical Times Square food fair. Mm-hmm. But you get world class entertainment while you eat. And it's constant. So you walk in, and it's like walking into a circus, there's something going on everywhere, every minute that you're there, the The people performing for you are performing, you know, wholeheartedly and having as much fun as you are doing doing what they do best.
0: Yeah. So how does that work? Like, are you performing like are you singing to me like while I'm ordering like, uh, you know, like, Jake, are you ready to order or is it like you take shifts doing the waiting and then doing the performing? Like, how how does that how does that work?
2: So ideally, you learn to, to multitask enough that you can fully perform your song when it's your turn. There are times when I have either put a microphone, you know, down the front of my shirt and passed out drinks while I have been singing my song. I had one song in my roster that if I was really slammed and I just desperately needed to take an order and I didn't have time to stop and sing, I could take the order while singing the song. Wow. And then as soon as the song is done, you know, you run back through and you're like, did I get everyone's food incorrectly? But most of the time, you could play with your audience. Um, essentially, they were a captive audience. They weren't going anywhere while they had food on the
1: table. <laughs>
2: right. uh, so we had a lot of fun with that. But, you know, we would do big group numbers where everyone would play. And we did anyway anything from, you know, big Broadway numbers or there was a Lady Gaga number where you had until a certain point in the song to make your costume. Um, so a lot of times we'd make like capes or sashes out of receipt paper. And then we would do a fashion show. Um, so it was a really special place to work and, um, we all had a really good time, even on days that you really hated being a waiter, you still got to do the fun part, which was the performing and playing with your friends and getting paid to do so hypothetically
1: i just got to yeah. say, this This blows my mind. As someone who used to wait tables, uh, I mean, I could barely, multi- I mean, like, if someone gave me a coupon, all right, I'm already struggling. Uh, so to imagine, like, performing full numbers, which I couldn't do anyway, but just the, the, the level of, of multitasking, I don't know how much I all got paid, but it wasn't enough, I'm yeah. sure.
2: Now, I didn't say I was a good waiter. <laughs> sure. But I, you got your food. Whether or not you got a refill when you asked for it right. 15 minutes later when I remembered that you asked me for another Diet Coke, different story.
1: But you got a hell of a song, um, and so, you know, that, that does help. And, you
2: know, that you have this beautiful little, like, secret where if your tables really just hated you at the moment, you could be like, hey, um, I need to sing something very impressive on my next turn because mm. uh, everybody hates me right now. And you could kind of make up for being a mediocre waiter.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, ah, I see. You
2: couldn't get away with murder, but you could get pretty close.
0: Gotcha. Nice. Okay. Well, I, I guess that that may be, you know, I don't know if it makes it, if it would make up enough for it uh, for me and Adam to do it. Both of us actually have, have uh, waited tables mm-hmm. in the past. And, you know, so I don't know if, if uh, we'd be able to do that, but, you know, for somebody maybe a little bit more talented, that, that might make it <laughs> a bit more doable. <laughs> uh, what was it like to, you know, work in that environment like what you know uh i mean that it it sounds like you really enjoyed you know doing that
2: yeah um it's definitely high paced it's not for everyone you it's something you either you pick up on the pace or you you just don't make it Mm. and that was kind of the fun as it was extremely fast paced and If you did have, you know, a table that didn't love you and wasn't having a good time, you knew that there was a table coming in behind them that Mm. was because there was always or almost always a line down the street to get into the restaurant because we didn't take reservations. Oh, wow. So these poor people, rain, shine, snow, they were standing outside waiting to come in and eat at the diner.
0: Yeah, well, I, I guess that does take the uh, – uh, that would maybe take a little bit of the pressure off, too, you know, that you got somebody coming in afterwards.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, there would be times where people will be like, this is horrible. I'm never coming back. And I'd be like, thank mm-hmm. you so much for coming. Have a great rest of your trip.
0: Right, right. Well, so what <laughs> kind of uh, – how is it that you, you know, started working there? You said most of the people are on – you know, they're either – Uh, They have been on Broadway or they're between contracts like uh, have like have you performed on Broadway? What kind of stuff did you do outside of Stardust, I guess?
2: So I performed in a show called Rocktopia on Broadway. Um, It was more of a concert than a Broadway show, but it was a really unique, fun experience. I was on the national tour of Cats uh, for a few years, and then I actually performed for Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines as one of their featured singers for a few years. Um, And I had just come off a cruise ship contract and I decided to move back to the city and um, go after Broadway. And one of my friends that I had met through the ship was like, Oh, my restaurant is hiring. You should, you should apply there. And I said, Oh, what, what restaurant? He was like, Ellen Stardust Diner. And I said, absolutely not. (laughs) No, no, I will not be a singing waitress. (laughs) And, um, then I was really poor. And I said, I would love to be a singing waitress. (laughs) Uh, So I went and I auditioned and I had to audition twice because my first audition, apparently the entertainment director did not think I was very good. And so he was like, maybe you should try again next week. And I was like, maybe I should try again tomorrow because I'm very poor and I need this job. Mm -hmm. Um, So I came back the next day and I sang something that I thought he would enjoy better than my original pick and he was like yeah no you are actually pretty good like come on come on back and i was like great thank you um so i started working there in 2016 and this is right before we went public with the union Mm -hmm. and you had this big 90 day waiting period where you were technically hired but they could fire you at any minute for anything Right. And they had been. So the minute I got hired there, you were seeing people get fired for just ridiculous things. Um, and the tensions were obviously very high. And I was very anxious and nervous and I just smiled too much. So people were like, Ugh, what's wrong with her? She's very happy all the time. And it mm-hmm. was because I was just, I needed the job and I didn't want to get fired. So I think a few days after my job, um, probation period was over. That's what that 90 days Mm -hmm. was called. Um, I was crying in the corner over something. And one of my coworkers was like, you should, you should go talk to Bianca. Like you should talk to Bianca. And I was like, "Um, okay, I don't really know her that well. And they're like, no, just go talk to Bianca. And so I went and I talked to Bianca, who's, you know, one of the kindest, most wonderful humans on the face of the planet. And she was like, Hey, some of us are getting together. Uh, in Queens for a meeting, you should come. And I was like, okay. Not knowing if I was going to a therapy session or if it was a, bo- <laughs> I didn't really have any idea what I was walking into. And so I walked into this very organized circle of people and they were discussing the union and trying to suss out what new employees. Um, they thought might be open to the union or who they thought might be opposed. And so, um, I was fortunate enough that they, they realized that I would be interested in this. So I joined Mm -hmm. pretty much immediately and I was like, yes, this sounds like a great idea. And it wasn't, it wasn't about anything radical. It was just making sure that we had a unified voice as the group of servers. And not only that we had a voice that, that, the other people in the kitchen and the busing staff and back of house that everyone had a voice that if we were having issues with management, which were abundant at the time, because they just switched the whole team of managers. Um, And that's kind of what the catalyst was for wanting to form this union. And so we formed the union, we went public um, and then I want to say less than three months after that, they ended up firing a whole bunch of servers. Uh, the first round was 13 servers, uh, that they fired and they accused them of theft and, Mm. and they, it had happened right after the last big round of new hires had finished their probation period. So we kind of realized that we were hired to replace all these people that they had planned on firing. Um, So that was a sobering day and that's, you know, Mm
1: -hmm. when things
2: really kicked off because they'd fired people who had built that restaurant and were the reason that tourists lined up outside to go there. It was not known for food. It was known because of these world-class performers and the, the joy that you were going to leave that restaurant with. Um, So they had the first big round of firings and then we got through the Christmas season, which is the big season. And then they fired another, um, 16 people in person so the total came to like 33 people total that they fired for theft and not one of them had ever stolen a a dime from that diner
0: so and this wasn't even in like at at this point right in in the campaign y'all are not public y'all haven't done any actions this is not in retaliation to any organizing that's happening this is just just in retaliation to the
2: yes it was it was they wanted to Washed the union before the union got started. Okay,
0: so you do. You, um, you think that they were like aware of the union? And, oh,
2: absolutely. And,
0: okay, I it see. was
2: it was right after we had gone public to management.
0: Okay, okay I'm sorry. So, head. The, and then the timeline they fired. They
2: fired all of our organizers, pretty much straight off the bat.
0: Oof. Oh wow! Okay. So
2: they thought they thought if they got the organizers out of the actual physical diner that they could kill it Mm -hmm. and oh they were wrong (laughs) um so we ended up forming kind of a plan to where we would have people who were vocal about being in the union still on staff and then we would have some people um who were in the union who weren't like secretive about being in the union but just weren't super vocal and i fell into that second group Mm -hmm. and um i've so distinctly, I had a big union sticker on the back of my um, check presenter that I always carried it towards me so that it was like, I'm in the union, but nobody needs to know but me. Um, and I remember one of my one of the managers like pulled me aside on my dinner break. And he was like, I just want to thank you so much for being so like pleasant and neutral in this whole situation. And like, you're always a friendly face. And I just was like smiling. And one of the union organizers is sitting next to me. And um, I'd like, after he leaves, I like take my check presenter out and I like took a picture with it. (laughs) And it was, it was interesting though, because it was very obvious that they treated people they thought weren't in the union very differently than they treated people who they knew were in the union. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but the, the biggest thing I think for, for Stardust is that we were all friends. So it wasn't like firing Jimmy number two down the line, who you don't know that, that well. Like they fired 13 of my friends right. and then expected us to just keep the party going like nothing had happened. And uh that didn't really sit well with with anyone in the diner. So what they did by doing that is they kind of gave us our first catalyst to like agitate and get more people on board with the union because we were like, are 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 you gonna let them do this to you? So, that that was the real kickoff for Stardust becoming a big thing. And really, what we wanted was just for those people to get their jobs back. So that's when the picketing started, and um, they put up these really amazing curtains to like try to close off the diner from the street where our our staff was picketing. And people would go out on their dinner breaks, so we got a half hour for dinner, mm-hmm. and we would go out and picket on our dinner break. And then come back into the diner and finish working our shift. And so it was, you just had a lot of people who were very passionate about making sure that people got their jobs back and that this wasn't just going to be something that they could continue to do once they got tired of you, or once you had an opinion that they didn't appreciate that they could just fire you for stealing when you didn't obviously didn't steal anything. So, but um our organizers did a great job of like getting connected with people because we'd never formed a union before Mm -hmm. um they got in touch with really smart awesome people um who guided us on you know when you make a demand what is kind of like the next steps in the process if your demand is not met then you have to and they it was basically like union performing 101 like a college course but we were doing it in real life and um we just had a lot of success it wasn't it wasn't always going for like the biggest craziest demand it was little things like um they wouldn't let us take our uh money home at the end of the night if you waited for it they made you put it in a safe and we all kind of said no we're not gonna we're not gonna do that we're gonna Mm -hmm. take our money home at the end of the night and so it just became, you know, that was our step number one. And then once we won that, we would go for something else. And then it got to the point where we'd won so many actions that they wouldn't really fight us on things. If we presented a demand, a lot of times the only thing we would have to do is then maybe it a second time. It was very rare that we had to escalate because they knew that we were going to carry through with whatever we demanded. We weren't going to make these crazy, outrageous demands. We wanted what we wanted. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of end of discussion at that point.
0: Right. That, so, that is really inspiring that you were able to do that, that you were able to get it to a place where, you know, you present the, the demand and, and more or less, you know, the concession is given at, at that point. Uh, what. Yeah. What was it like for for you and for your coworkers to ca- have that kind of power in your workplace? Because that's not something that, um, you know, that a lot of people experience.
2: It, I mean, it was very gratifying, if we're going to be honest. Like, it felt great. But the important thing is that we were not asking for the Earth, the Sun, the Moon, and stars. We were asking for very basic things. So we tried to make sure that when we presented a demand, one, it was something that we were very passionate about. um, And two, that it was something that if for any reason they did say no, that we had the support to then escalate. Um, And, you know, we tried to make things fair, unless it was like something very egregious. Um, We tried to make sure it was things that we really were ready to fight for. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, when we closed for, uh, the pandemic up to that point, we'd really gotten to where things were running pretty smoothly and they were working with us um, on some of our demands. Like our, I think one of our last big ones was about the sound system and we were really mm. struggling with the sound. Cause if you're going to go to a restaurant that is known for its singing servers, it should have a decent sound system and people were getting vocal injuries from overcompensating with mm. sound problems. Oh man. So Yeah, it was just it was stuff like that, that um, for the sake of the singers in that diner was in the best interest of the group to push forward.
1: That's, you know, that's something that's really stuck out with me throughout my years in the movement. And, you know, even throughout my time on this show is how often workers are really just asking for some common sense kind of solutions, uh, things that, you know, as the person doing the work every day. You know it. Uh, you know that the you know solution to the problem. Management may not even be aware that there's a problem. Um, you know, or in some cases, you know, it doesn't really affect them, so they're not worried about it. And I think that's something that you know, despite some of the anti-union propaganda that's out there in our society, workers basically just want a little bit of respect, a little bit of dignity, some you know, uh, decent compensation and benefits to have a decent life and have Mm -hmm. some actual input over the work that you do because you know for all the talk of democracy and freedom and liberty and all this stuff that we hear that's not the reality when you go to work every day you know the vast majority of us spend more time at work than we do at home or with our families or you know doing anything else and we spend that time in a dictatorship It is not a democracy. It's not a republic. It's, you know, we don't elect our managers uh, are the bosses. And so I think that's one of the really, really powerful things about your story and about these other stories that we're hearing is just how by organizing and coming together as a team, you can actually have a voice in the work that you do every day.
2: And I think I think people get um, the word union is very scary to a lot of Uh, people who aren't familiar with it. It doesn't have to be something scary. You don't have to be fighting for radical ideas. If you just want to make sure that, you know, you have something that you need as a workforce and the best way to communicate and get your voice heard is to act as one group. And when you put a, a word like a union with that, I think it makes people feel a little anxious because there's mm. so much in history about issues and, you know, strikes and crazy things like that. But when you look at the whole, that is how you get things done. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not always people that you think have the most power who end up having the most successful stories uh, based on, you know, unionizing and combining their voices to make one effort heard more loudly.
0: Right. And that's something that we, uh, you know, we see this in, um, you know, in campaigns across the country, the, uh, you know, the really – piddling things that that people are still asking for, that people are still demanding through their unions and through their actions. Uh, You know, I mean, uh, there's been two um, BCTGM strikes over the past uh over the past month one concluded a while ago and one is still ongoing it's the nabisco strike and in both of these strikes uh you've got people that are working 80 plus hours a week in 2021 and i mean it's just really insane you know the like just the uh the common sense-ness of some of these demands and the fact that uh you know this, like you said this is how it gets done whether you know whatever the demand is it is very unlikely that your boss is going to fix it on their own and you know what? there there have been campaigns uh, that i can't i can't recall a specific one uh as of this instant, but it's a pretty common thing that happens when a union is mentioned or when there's an election coming up, management will, you know, they'll start going around and asking, Oh, how can we fix this? And they'll like mm-hmm. fix things here and there. Uh, that, and, and it's like they never ever cared about that before and the only way to, to right. really make them care is to come together as, uh, you know, with your fellow workers it, as a union and do what, what it takes, whether that be, you know, yes. just D- presenting them with a demand and you know showing them the support that it has and sometimes that's enough and uh sometimes you have to do informational picketing sometimes you have maybe do a slowdown and and uh, all the way up to and including a strike and you know being the most powerful weapon that that workers have uh the withholding of their labor because it just uh you know bosses aren't going to give you uh <laughs> these things themselves out of their yeah. own benevolence
2: Yeah, that was. And, you know, learning to wield your power Mm -hmm. or at least use what power you do have in control to efficiently push your your agenda forward. So I know for us, people came to hear us sing. So when we could, we would instill um, singing strikes so we would stop singing. So then people were just left in an awkward diner with their mediocre Times Square food and um, they weren't getting what they had come for. And so that way, you know, when we were doing the picketing, we were picketing out by where the line was. So we could um, make sure that the guests going in knew that there was a chance that we were going to stop singing. Mm, And then, no, we the most recent one we used it for is we were having issues with the air conditioning in the kitchen. So if Mm. it got above a certain degree in the kitchen, because that was putting our our back of house at health risk. Yeah. Um, If it got above a certain temperature in the kitchen, we would stop singing. We would stop service until the kitchen had time to cool down. And um, one of the things that they tried to do was convince that our back of house staff that we were taking money from them by doing this. And uh, we got together with some of the guys who would, you know, listen to us because not everyone was on our side. Mm -hmm. Um, We got together with our back of house staff and I went, this is where we were last year when we were just working through. This is where we are this year. It's maybe a $15 difference. So we're not taking money out of your pockets. That's a significant amount. Um, We are trying to make sure that everyone who's in the diner and is working has a safe, healthy work environment.
0: How does that even in. make? Like they don't, they don't get like tips. How? What is even the argument? We that... were,
2: we were, a, we were a pooled house. Oh, I um, see, I see, I so see. So we would tip out, uh, the not necessarily like the kitchen guys, but like our bussers and our runners, mm-hmm. um, who were considered back of house and front of house. Okay. Um, so they they were trying to pit them against us, right? And We just we were like, you have to just look at numbers. It's all written right here for you. Mm -hmm. So once they realized that they weren't losing a significant amount of money, they were more amenable to going with us.
1: Right. I I was just going to say, I I think that's such a a big lesson, what you just shared, because there is the divide and conquer tactics uh, that is used, because even in a workplace where, you know, everyone's there selling their labor for a wage, that doesn't mean we're all doing the same kind of work are in the same environment you know the back of the house front of the house in a restaurant is is really a a great illustration of that and you know white collar versus blue collar uh i came from the education background so you would have you know your certified people your teachers and librarians but then you had your non-certified your support staff the cafeteria workers and custodians and office staff and it is very easy for the bosses to use those divisions to weaken everybody involved uh and to destroy the kind of relationships and solidarity you need. Uh, but yeah. What, but but what y'all did by taking a stand on their behalf that, you know what, you probably weren't spending a lot of time in that kitchen that was super hot, but they were, and you knew how important it was for them and for their safety and well-being. And I think yeah. that's how you can begin to transcend those kind of differences is real solidarity to look out for one another and to realize that, Hey, an injury to them is an injury to us. Uh, And the only way we heal that injury is together.
2: Because you can't, it it doesn't matter what role you have. Like you said, in schools, um, you can't have a school functioning without your support staff.
0: Right. Right.
2: So it's, it's very much a, a symbiotic relationship and you need each other in order to make the, whole continue to function properly so it 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 doesn't make sense to me to to not fight for someone else even if mm-hmm. it's not even if they're not at like a server or front mm-hmm. of it like no they're 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 part of the team
1: yeah
2: so i think that's important
1: right and again and, yeah and i, I
2: mean, loved about stardust
0: yeah, I mean, w- workers all across the country have learned that lesson. I think in, in West Virginia, before the successful strike that everybody knows about, the successful teacher strike, uh, there was an attempted strike before that did not incorporate uh, support staff, like you said, Adam, uh, bus drivers and things like this. And it did not go over as well. And the second, the one that, that did go over well uh, included support staff, bus drivers, things like that. And so, you know, if, if you have not only teachers... Walking off the job, but the people who drive the kids to school, uh, refusing yeah. to drive the bus, you know, that is going to be much more effective. And it was. They yeah. got a completely Republican legislature and, uh, governor to sign the bill that they wanted them to. I mean, it was a very successful strike in, uh, you know, in a red, st- in a, uh, you know, traditionally kind of hostile environment and, uh, you know, fighting, uh, you know, fighting for people that aren't in exactly the same situation as you is exactly how they were able to win and it sounds like exactly how you were able to win and and so i'm interested erica you mentioned that you know you were basically kind of taking a college course on organizing in real life and uh you know, you the Stardust was an IWW campaign. You're an IWW member. What was the relationship like between the general membership branch in New York City and the uh, Stardust Diner um, campaign? Because, like, uh, I, I I just want I'm, I'm interested in, in kind of the support that y'all were given from the rest of the branch, and like how how that worked, and and how much did you know coming in like where did you come from a union family and things like that and that's that a lot of questions right there but uh i'll, I'll go ahead and give the floor to you
2: <laughs> Ooh, this i felt like the support was outstanding um from the iww i i believe it's the, and this was a few years ago so i apologize if i get any of these wrong and uh kevin ray feel free to fact check me um which i'm sure he'll give me a list of notes but <laughs> uh he's he's like one of our main uh, founding Stardust SFU members. Mm. Uh, I felt like the support was really good. We have our own uh, little branch, if I'm not mistaken, in the IWW. I don't know if I we're see. fully part of like the city or if we started something slightly different because I think the hope was to start to incorporate other specialty or specialized restaurants that used mm. uh, performance-based artists Um, I don't know if if we've had any luck with that, since obviously we're in the smack dab middle of a pandemic. Um, But the support we had from IWW members in helping us get through these campaigns and really understand, you know, one, how the IWW works and all that means and the support we've had since then in order to let us go and help, um, other campaigns in, you know, small shops, kind of like ours were just to make sure that everyone has the building blocks and the tools they need to succeed. Even if it's just a really small demand and would be something easy to win. Mm. Starting off with a small victory is still starting with a victory and a victory is a victory.
1: Um, And victories build on on new victories. I mean, you get a little win and you feel a little more confident about something bigger.
2: And once you kind of start having that, at least this is my hope, uh, once you start having that rapport of, we're not going to ask you for scary things that are going to destroy your business. Um, We're asking for things that are going to help all of us make sure that this works to the best of its ability. Then your demands... And your attitude of those demands kind of shifts in their eyes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I can't say that we ever had a time where we just had to ask politely without making a demand. Be like, oh my gosh, do you guys mind if we just, you know, fix the air conditioner so it doesn't rain on us in the middle of shift in yeah. July? Um, but, you know, we've we've made progress on that. So even things that are still... In progress as far as our demands go there's still wins like they're Mm. still bringing people to work on things and they would not have they would have just let it rain on table 47 forever right and we just call it the water feature
0: yeah (laughs) yeah well that's i mean that's definitely a common misconception or or a common argument that that you know anti-union folks like to like to trot out that you know unions are are bad for business or something And, and it's like you know uh, in one sense, uh, in a zero-sum kind of way, like every dollar that that goes to a that goes to a worker isn't going to a boss, sure, and that's fine, that's good in my opinion. But uh, uh, you know, it is not in the worker's interest to actually destroy the business, right? The thing is, you know, I mean, if if you destroy the business, then you don't have the job anymore. You don't
2: have a job, <laughs>
0: yeah. The they uh, you know workers come together through unions to fight for you know a better life for themselves and and that is going to include in in some way or another uh having that job and so it's it's obviously you know workers and and this is something that um in in Florida in the dandelion campaign you know they were just like we just want to see your books to see like what you can afford we don't want you to break the bank we don't want the store to close we just want to see like We want to make sure that our demands are reasonable before we even ask for one, you know, and and that's and I think that is the attitude of almost every uh, of virtually every worker and certainly every union. It's not that we want to bankrupt the business like we just want, uh, you know, we just we just want fairness and dignity and respect. And and that's not, uh, you know, that's not unreasonable. (laughs)
2: 100%.
0: So how did you come from a union family or was this all like, were you kind of starting from ground zero?
2: I was kind of starting from ground zero. My mom is a teacher and was an administrator. Um, and she's now retired. And so that, I I think she was in, yes, she was in the union here. Um, but my dad was military. Mm. Um, so he didn't, he didn't really, that wasn't a union right? thing. Cause it's, you know, it's the military. Um, but my whole experience with unions is the actors union and kind of seeing how it has been successful in the past and how it's not been successful in the more recent area. Uh, but, but Stardust was my first experience with, joining a union and working in a union that is small enough that the membership still has a really heavy say in, you know, what we are working on and what we're not working on and what kind of needs to be pushed to the forefront and what can what we can play in the long term as far as, you know, demands are concerned.
0: Right, right. So are you a member of SAG-AFTRA? No, I'm a
2: member of Actors' Equity.
0: Okay. Okay. Gotcha. If you were a member of SAG, I, I, I might, would have, uh, in a little bit, asked you what you thought about the election. Uh, <laughs> th- it looks like there's been some, there's been a development today that doesn't look very good.
2: Oh. <laughs> um, Uh-oh.
0: Th- apparently they're, like, keeping observers r- today is, that they're counting the ballots today and they're keeping observers from the office. Like, they're not allowing observers in Um Potentially in violation of the um, labor management that relations. Yeah, yeah, sounds a little shady. Yeah, definitely really shady. Um, but you know, some of that that's kind of pretty recent. I, I just saw somebody that that I know that's been following that say something on Twitter about it. So um, I'm I'm going to be interested in seeing what happens with that if, if they end up yeah. letting observers in or or if the election just gets overturned. Um, but uh, so what what was your What was your experience then as somebody like kind of starting from uh, from ground zero and and learning about all of these, uh, you know, learning about unions from the inside, like from a campaign instead of as as like on an academic level, like reading about them in a book or something like what was that like, uh, you know, learning all those things in real life?
2: I I feel like it is you know, going to work really well for some people. And then for some people, they need to know the whole theory behind it before they can put it into practice. Um, I, because I had no experience with it uh, and it was kind of a learn as you go situation, you learned what worked, you learned what didn't work. You learned how to talk to people, how not to talk to people, um, how to figure out how to and how not to talk to people. Uh, it's kind of like, for me, it was like learning to play an instrument. Mm. Um, you can read a lot of theory on music and go, oh yes, I know how this is supposed to function or you can just start learning to play chords and you're going to play some wrong notes and then you're going to learn to play some right notes and eventually, you know you should be able to play something that resembles a song on whatever instrument you've chosen to play um, It was, it was, for me, it was easier learning with tangible application because when you start getting into the theory of unions and all of the different various kinds of unions and how they work and whether or not you want to take it to a vote or things like that, it just, it can become very overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people lose sight of why they decided to start attempting to unionize in the first place. Um, because it all just becomes very muddy and muddled and confusing.
0: Right. right.
2: So I think because we kept things relatively simple at Stardust and I mean, the most important thing I can to stress is just communication. Mm. You have to talk to each other and you have to, whether or not it's something big that happened at work or like a passing remark from a manager or just something that you're noticing someone else is being spoken to in a way that gives you little red flags in the back of your head. Like you just have to be very aware of your surroundings and be comfortable saying, Hey, have you noticed this? Is this just me? Um, Do you think this is something we need to like kind of record or be aware about just keeping tabs on things? We were all really good about communicating with each other about even the slightest, things that that caused anyone to think something might be going on and sometimes we were just being paranoid but sometimes we were really onto something uh before they had a chance to get it rolling um so we we kind of we didn't love that we saw it coming but we kind Mm. of saw the second round of firings coming and it allowed us to be slightly more prepared for it and how we were going to respond um the best response we got though from that is um a girl we were picketing outside the restaurant and a girl was walking by with her headphones on and she like looked at the picket line and then like looked at the restaurant and she was like is it this place and we were like yeah and she like talked to us for a minute and then she took the entire sub sandwich that was in her hand and just hurled it at the window of the restaurant and the legend of Sandwich Girl was born. Wow. Uh, I love it. She got so mad about what was going on that she took. And I'm sure it was like a $14 sandwich in right. New York City. <laughs> and she just lobbed it at that window. And there were sandwich stains on there for months.
0: That's awesome. It like
2: ingrained itself onto the window. So, you Community know.
1: Community support.
2: It was Fantastic. And it scared the <laughs> snot out of that poor table that was sitting yeah. right there. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, we man. were just like, we feel so bad. They did nothing.
0: Right. But
2: this is a legendary moment. And we're so absolutely here for
0: it. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, what was, you know, did you, uh, you know, growing up, did you have much education about unions like in school or did you really have like an opinion about them or were you like when you came to New York you were just like really a super blank slate like I don't really have an opinion on unions they sound fine I guess or you know
2: I mean I knew because I had moved to New York with the intention of of performing on Broadway Hmm. that eventually I was gonna have to join the actors union Hmm. and so I never had like a negative connotation it was something that I was like okay, this is a step in the right direction. Once you've reached a certain level, you get to join the union and they protect your rights and they do X, Y, and Z for you. And I I knew that unions existed for other businesses or like Mm -hmm. careers and things like that. I had no idea how they functioned, kind of what they did. I knew that they... Were there, But I didn't know anything about them. I'll be very honest about that. I didn't know Mm -hmm. anything about how the actors union functioned. Um, I'm in it, and I'm still learning things about how it functions. But uh, I think that was beneficial because I didn't have any negative feelings towards unions. I'd never been in a situation where I had a family member who was negatively impacted by something that had to do with union one way or another, um, because... You know, some strikes are long and arduous mm-hmm. and
1: they don't even all win
2: when you, they don't all win. But even sometimes when you do win, you still have to to handle how you um, how you process what you went through in that strike period. Yeah, because, you know, I know there are people with children who are trying to put food on their on their kids tables. And in the long run. The benefit of the strike obviously outweighs the negatives, but you still have to deal with the negatives while you're going through them.
0: Right. Well, something that's that's interesting that that you said um, there that I think is kind of a good contrast with um, with maybe the the model that the IWW has is is you said. Um, about your knowledge of unions you said like once you reach a certain level you get into the actor's union and uh they protect your rights and they do this or they do that and that was kind of the perception that you that that you were that you were given about the actor's union Mm -hmm. or that you kind of um absorbed through osmosis and now i think ultimately still you know i'm i am uh you, you know i I've seen, and, and, and you see this on all sorts of of different areas, people third-partying the union. Of course the boss wants to try to do it because they want you to see the union as a different thing than you, but also sometimes unions can fall into that or union members Mm -hmm. can fall into third-partying the union and acting like the union is a separate entity. Uh, There was one time where um, in a conversation that that I was having with a group of people, somebody said something about – what happened at work it, a bad thing the boss did a bad thing and this other person who knew the th- the third person you know this is getting kind of kind of hectic but there are three people in the conversation right and one uh, person one says bad thing person two says well the union should have done something about that why didn't your union protect you you had a bad union or, or and it's like the union is the members that's where they derive their power from now how many members it's a week. Yeah, like, why didn't you do something about what, you know, why didn't you work t- together with your coworkers to make sure that that couldn't be done or that, that you, uh, that, that you fix that problem? And some unions do a better job than others about inculcating that idea about the union. And some unions actually, uh, unfortunately, actively discourage that idea they don't Mm -hmm. they they don't want the membership to take ownership of the union they want the membership to see it as a service model you join the union and we the staff the elected officials give you protection we give you higher wages as opposed Mm -hmm. to you know but but even ultimately even in the service model uh the power derives from the membership, whether or not the membership or the people doing the servicing know that. But in the IWW, it's always very explicit that like, uh, yeah, uh, through multiple ways for one, we have very little staff, so there's nobody to like lord over you and say, we're giving you this, right? Uh, but, but also that's like the ideology, the, the, it's a purposeful thing, right? That, that we want members to have ownership in a real way. Talk about like how you, you know, did, how, how did you, did you kind of reckon with that as you were becoming more involved in the stardust campaign with your perception of unions as potentially a thing that services its members?
2: It, yeah, it made me look at, um, you know, just how different there are many different types of unions, um, and how different the IWW is as far as like empowering the membership. And, uh, that really worked works really well for Stardust um, is that we, there's not one person who's been in charge of the union since it started. It rotates, Mm -hmm. you know, who's in our officer positions. And we try to make sure that, you know, everyone who wants to be involved has the opportunity to really see how it functions um, from the inside, as well as not just being a member, but as far as, you know, like how running a meeting and even throughout this pandemic, we have continuously met at least once a month um, to make sure that we are still in contact with each other, that one person isn't getting one story from the diner, that another person isn't getting that story um, to make sure, you know, that people are just okay. This has been a rough year, Um, but it has made me look at what we can change and this isn't about the Actors Union, but it has made me go, well, why aren't we, why aren't we going to the membership for these mm. questions? And it has made me want to get more involved as a member because you know, complaining doesn't change anything. You have to you have to add action to the back of it in order to see a positive change in the world. Did I answer that question at all, or did I just talk a circle around?
0: No, it? No, no, you you absolutely did. Yeah, yeah, and and it was it was pretty. Uh, a circle of a question you know my <laughs> i i'm pretty meandering about We're you know getting my thoughts out over yeah no that that that's fine that's uh, people if they like the show this is what they like and if they don't then they're not going to okay. be listening so <laughs> um i mean i uh I, i've always really um thought that the stardust campaign was was uh uh i i've I've followed it for a while, not super closely, but I, I've really been inspired by what y'all have been able to do. What would you say is is your like the thing that you're most proud of as, um, you know, as a part of the Stardust campaign?
2: I mean, the the thing I have to be most proud of is getting thirty three people their jobs back. It took a long time, but the day that that first wave walked back into the diner for their first shift back was a feeling that I just can't, I can't even describe it. Like it was Mm -hmm. pure joy and it was the greatest sense of accomplishment I've ever had because it was not, it was not one person's work. It was not two people's work. It was an entire group of people coming together and standing up for what they knew was was right and you know it was just it was the best feeling in the whole wide world we had people who weren't even on staff that day who came in just to see new people and it was like it was like Christmas you get to you come in for your shift and you'd be like oh my gosh hi I haven't seen you in so long (laughs) So it was it was a glorious moment, and then just you know the the big change in the attitude of some of the management, not all, Hmm. um, but there there was definitely a shift of of momentum when when those people came back, and it was great.
1: That's awesome.
0: So, how has the how's the union dealt with the the pandemic? Now, m- my understanding is is that um, the diner has been closed for is is still closed and has been closed for the most of the pandemic. Is that true? Or are they still closed yeah. right now?
2: They they are still closed right now. Um, we are trying to figure out uh, when it's going to reopen and what the plan is. Uh, with the exception of a couple of Months in October, back last fall, when things kind of started, we're able to open to like 25% capacity or something like that. Mm. Um, the diner did try reopening. Um, it was a very limited staff. It was limited hours. Um, they, they tried to make it work. And our our draw is from tourism. So I think the minute all the New Yorkers were like, "Hey, we could go to Stardust," and they did it once, and they were like, "Okay,
1: yeah, (laughs) they're done." Right?
2: (laughs) You you want people who are are coming in for entertainment, Mm -hmm. and um, you just we just couldn't sustain it on twenty five percent capacity. It's Mm
0: -hmm.
2: it's kind of a beast. So they opted to to shut down until we could reopen at one hundred percent capacity. And we're just waiting to hear when that might be.
0: Have y'all have y'all been able to secure recall rights for people that were previously employed?
2: Yeah. I have to think about that. I don't one hundred percent know the answer. Um, I know that we had an agreement in back when we shut down that everyone would have their job when the diner reopened hmm.
0: okay. but i
2: don't know i don't know the official terms for that
0: yeah yeah i know that yeah that that's right i just i, I was just wondering if, if y'all were able to make sure or, or y'all had been able to win uh employees getting their job back um when, yeah. when the diner reopens that's that's really that's really good and you and to like make it explicit for the audience y'all have done all of this without an NLRB election without official government recognition without a contract like this has all been um, you know pretty uh, um, pretty radical like solidarity unionism as as opposed to you know fighting for contracts through the NLRB process.
2: Yes, one hundred percent. And it was it was interesting when we were organizing. Um, some of the smear stuff from the the management side was vote no, or they're going to make you uh, <laughs> vote, and we were like, no, no, you're not listening. We're not voting. Yeah, <laughs> we're a union. We didn't we didn't ask anyone else's opinion on that. Um, so I think because they didn't they'd not heard of something like this before. They didn't really know how to respond. Mm-hmm. And the people that they had brought in for their, for their union busting talks were like, I don't, we've never dealt with this
0: That's before awesome. where they're just
2: like, no, no, where are you? And they were like, well, I guess, I guess they're a union.
0: That's awesome.
2: It was really fun. It was really fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that, that I, uh, I, I do love hearing bosses and union busters being stumped. Uh, that makes me happy.
2: <laughs> it was so good. Oh, those were really like union busting is terrible. I don't support it. But if you ever have the opportunity to sit through one as an observer,
0: mm-hmm. they're the
2: dumbest thing on the face of the planet. Yeah. And you're just like, what are you guys talking about?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. We no, but it was. During very the Am- entertaining during the amazon campaign we went through the the flyer that they were giving all of the employees and maybe one of these days we'll like play a, a one of the walmart anti-union videos on the show sometime and just laugh at it but uh but that was fun laughing at the amazon flyer was uh, was very fun during that campaign <laughs> but adam is there anything else that you wanted to ask about the campaign
1: uh no i just uh, i think it's amazing uh which all have been able to accomplish i'm definitely pulling for y'all in terms of you know getting through this pandemic hopefully the restaurant will open back up a hundred percent and everyone who wants yeah. to come back can come back and you know y'all can just c- kind of restart your momentum and keep going from where you left off
2: yeah, yeah i mean fingers fingers crossed
0: So the, you know, I I just want to end it on the, on the personal note, you know, you are from Alabama, you're back in Alabama right now. You said before you go to a show in DC, like, how did you get into, um, how did you get into, you know, performing and moving to the big apple Mm -hmm. from, you know, Huntsville, Alabama? Uh, what was that journey like? Like, did you always know that you wanted to be a performer or?
2: So I got uh, bit by the theater bug when I was in sixth grade. I went to see Showboat at the Von Braun Center. Um, it was the Civic Center back then. Going to date myself a little bit. Um, I went to see that and I turned to my mom at intermission and I was like, I think I want to do this for a living. And my mom was like, sure, Erica, whatever you want. Pretty shy um, mm-hmm. growing up. And she'd put me in dance classes to help me um come out of my shell a little bit. And so I will never claim to say I was a great dancer, but I had a lot of personality. <laughs> uh, but I did once I kind of went, Oh yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. I started putting little pieces together and I, I did the high school musicals at Grissom high school. Um, I did all the summer shows in Huntsville. Huntsville has a crazy theater community. Mm-hmm. Um, And so I would do uh, at least one, maybe two musicals in the summertime. And then I do the show during the school year. And then I went to the university. I graduated from the University of Alabama uh, with a degree in musical theater. And my senior year, uh, we all went to New York to do a senior showcase for some agents. And I got invited to go to the audition for the national tour of Cats. Um, And I literally laughed. I was like, (laughs) no, I'm not going to be in Cats. That's ridiculous. Um, but I, there was a tap dancing cat and I got offered that, that role in that production. And I did the national tour for two years and then I moved to New York. And then I said, this is terrible. And then I moved to Florida to work for Royal Caribbean cruise lines. And then I moved back to New York and, um, started working at Stardust and surrounded myself with people who were as driven as they are talented. Um, and it inspires you to push yourself further than you think you could push yourself uh, professionally. But I mean, you can't, you, you kind of have to tackle it the same way you would tackle eating a pie one piece at a time.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, and- that is, and, and you're going to a show in DC. What is that show?
2: So I'm doing. It's a uh, Beauty and the Beast at the Only Theater Center, which is just outside D.C. and only Maryland. It's about 20 minutes from the National Mall, and I'm very excited because uh, it's you know it's, it's it's so woke. Don't put that in there, um, but it is it is a very uh, inclusive production. Of that, Beauty and the Beast. And that's going to be
0: how we are. advertise it, by the way. We're going to clip <laughs> <It's>, that <laughs> and put that on Twitter. Watch it because she's very woke and she <laughs> likes woke.
2: She's so woke. Uh, no. Um, but it's, you know, we have uh, a majority cast that is uh, people of color and we have uh, handy, capable actors being mm. uh, used. Our, our Beast is a, uh, has lost a leg to cancer, but then designed his own prosthetic to be able to dance still because he didn't want to lose his career because of, of losing a a limb to cancer. Um, and it's just going to be something very different. And I love, I love different. So I'm very excited about that opportunity and that challenge my way
0: that after does, not uh,
2: dancing 18 months
0: yeah <laughs> yeah i bet that's like really gonna be a, a breath of fresh air after you know not being able to to do that for so long i'm, I'm sure you're really looking so, forward to it
2: i'm so excited when it's is gonna it? be a good time uh we start rehearsals in october and then we open november 11th
1: okay all right. Well, we that's have. so cool. And my daughter here is a huge Beauty and the Beast fan. So, uh. <gasps> hey, yeah, girl. Uh, uh what, oh, what, so what's your role in Beauty and the Beast?
2: I'm in the ensemble, which means I get to cause lots of trouble in the background.
1: Okay. Um, that's fun. And then I
2: am understudying Madame Le Grand Bouche. I get her name wrong every time. It's The Wardrobe. Yeah. Who sings opera. Ah. Um, so. So, like, guess, if yeah. she
0: dies, then you become the...
2: Then apparently I'm going to step into that role.
0: Wow. Um,
2: but let's not hope death on any of my co-stars <laughs> I haven't met yet.
0: Absolutely not. Absolutely not.
1: No, no. Maybe... But do break a leg. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you. That's really cool. <laughs> and so glad to... Uh, that, you know, small world. Here we are talking to uh, Huntsville, Alabama native. Uh,
2: I I I, know, well, cause we went I, we to were the were same to high school. How, days ago. how
1: weird is that, you know?
2: That's Crazy. It was crazy.
1: Y'all graduated a we, year apart, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And but you you don't remember each other from high school. No. I mean there's like two thousand people big, yeah, yeah at a, it's a It was
2: yeah, it was a big school. About five hundred um, per
1: class. So
2: and basically hmm. if you didn't come into that fine arts pod, mm-hmm.
1: oh, I didn't
2: yeah. know anybody. I had my I had my little area and I stayed there.
1: Gotcha. Because hey, I was
2: cool. I was a cool kid in high school. <laughs>
1: Well that was that's a credit to uh the fine arts department at Grissom. Um, yeah. you know, and when public education is halfway funded, you know, uh we can actually have pretty good arts programs and yeah. uh, send folks to D C and New York. All the way from Alabama. So I think it's great that you um have made this, this journey and definitely wishing you all the best in your next steps
2: thank you very much
0: i've uh, really enjoyed talking to you erica and we, we've we got some folks i know that uh that listen to dc so maybe they'll drop by and and uh watch beauty and the beast and and be able to see a wobbly on the stage uh, yes. so erica thanks so much for Live talking to dream. us i appreciate thank it thank
2: you guys for having me it was very fun
0: thanks